0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, nachumsegel.com, jmandtheam.org, coming to you live on a Thursday night from the beautiful, yet si- slightly dark, lower east side of Manhattan. We have a Rummy, executive assistant of Rummy, here in the control booth, and I want to welcome our new show intern, Judith Eel from Storing College for Women, who is uh, a accomplished uh, politico in her own right. On uh, on college campuses, so we welcome you to the show, and uh, hopefully we'll hear a lot from Judith and uh, some of our college age listeners in the coming weeks. So a a really uh, move uh, leap forward for for this show as as we we age a little bit as we get uh, into middle age. Now that we've done about a dozen shows, we uh, you know have achieved uh, intern status. So. As we instituted last week, a little Politics 101, a little bit of uh, headlines, a couple interviews. We had some very free-spirited interviews last week. And as you know, politics never takes a break. The inauguration was on Monday. By watch should have been on Sunday. But uh, we don't do inaugurations on a Sunday, so we did it on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, second-term inaugurations are a little bit anticlimactic, I think. Draws a nice crowd, but... Some nice pomp and circumstances, a great parade. I will tell you, despite the cold weather that you always have in January outside for all that time, the parade is really something. So if you haven't gone to inaugural parade, we don't really have military parades here in the U.S. I guess that's kind of a virtue of we're not as militaristic a society as some out there, but we don't really have that kind of military parade. But you have one in Washington, a big one, every four years, and it's pretty cool. As for the speech... Yeah, I'm. I'm not really going to go out on a limb, but I'm kind of feeling that the transformative president is kind of uh, becoming a just a regular type of president. Maybe uh, just a little bit of a rudimentary type of president. We expected huge, grand gestures and all kinds of great uh, things for the president, but we didn't. uh, We may not have gotten the inspiration that we're looking for. And of course, we got a little bit or maybe not so little bit of the left turn. But that's a little bit of the virtue of the climate that we're in. Uh, we're in a hyperpartisan situation. And that's a good segue into one of the other top stories this week, which was the House Republicans decided essentially to punt the debt ceiling about three months down the road. And uh, we kind of every week keep talking about these fiscal issues. We'll discuss that with some experts later in the show as far as the impact on the second term. But we are really looking at a big fight coming up. Despite the fact that the debt ceiling has now been pushed out, we are looking at a big fight over a government shutdown. We're looking at a big fight over spending cuts, which I think, well, at least sitting from this chair, something's got to happen. Because when you continue to spend beyond your means, as anybody with any type of debt, credit card debt, and etc., you you know eventually there's going to be a reckoning. But Washington seems, as as I've said before, and I can sit, continue to say, probably each and every week, Washington seems to be immune from the idea of living within its means. All the other governments out there, state, local, county, village, town, dog catcher, fire district, they all have to live. Within a budget, except in Washington, that just keeps growing. And not to be remiss with the big political story of the week. The Israeli elections, which were just two days, two short, two very short days ago. And politically, a fascinating election. I don't think there was any doubt as to what exactly was going to happen as far as who potentially would be the prime minister going forward, whether there would be a change in that. But there almost was. And uh, the votes are still being counted. I Almost was, in a sense, not nece- as to what kind of coalition there would be. There's still, that's still up in the air. So we're going to hear from an expert on that issue as well. As you know, we cover politics on both sides of the pond here on this show. So, again, another fascinating week, but to continue very, very briefly, because I want to get to our first guest, who's got a lot to say, as our guests do, and of course I have a lot to say as well, so let's not, uh, you know, let's not discount that, but the quick The Politics 101, uh, your political questions out there, and a little bit of explanation. Last week we covered redistricting, this week we're going to cover the filibuster. The filibuster is in the news as well, because Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid has declared the death of the filibuster. Unless Republicans cooperate with him, he is going to end the tradition that the Senate has had for decades and decades of a filibuster. So you might ask, what is a filibuster? Strange word, I I admit, but uh, there are a lot of strange traditions out there. But the filibuster is basically that any of the hundred members of the Senate can declare that they are going to talk essentially forever and they are going to just not to continue on to debate an issue and go on and on and on and on. And in order to end that debate, to have what's known as a cloture vote, you need 60 senators in order to do that. So in order, it's not enough to just debate things. We actually have to vote on things. We actually have to move an agenda. And in order to move an agenda in the United States Senate, you have to have 60 votes in order to do that. So we know about majority rule. Majority rule would indicate 50 or 51, actually, 50 plus potentially the vice president sometimes votes in the event of a tie. You need 51 in order to move the agenda, but in the Senate, you actually really need 60. And Harry Reid has claimed or is claiming currently, and it was claimed by Republicans beforehand and was claimed by other uh, majority leaders of the Senate that the filibuster is. Hampering our democracy, and that it is keeping the Senate from functioning, functional, functioning, excuse me, functioning properly. Well, if that's the case, might as well just blow it up, right? It just doesn't make sense to have it. Why, why allow one or two members of the Senate to kind of go on and on and on their own and keep things from happening? So there was always the sense that the Senate should operate by consensus. It should operate by and understanding that everybody should kind of get along and that you shouldn't do things if many of the senators are opposed to it. Just like we have a situation, there's a tradition in the Senate you could put a hold on a nomination that one senator can say for whatever reason, they don't even have to disclose who they are. They could just put a hold on a nomination, anybody who's nominated. It's an incredible amount of power to vest in a single member, and they can't even vote. They don't even go. They don't even go for a cloture vote. So a lot of strange traditions out there. So you have to balance the two things of the long-term, long-time Senate tradition of consensus and congeniality versus the need, the very, very real need to get things done. But on the other hand, just to, wait, just to play devil's advocate with myself, do you really want a situation where a small majority, if it, if it were, can dominate everything? can essentially dominate the, the the workings of an entire house. So, folks, I guess that's really the perspective we have on the filibuster. That's really what the filibuster is. And uh, I see some of the others in the control room here nodding their heads and saying, abolish it, get rid of it. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I'm curious, and we can... Uh, certainly take comments on the Twitter feed. I think that that's what we'll, we'll kind of go for, is uh, at the spin class. And I'm not going to spell that out for you, but it's at the spin class on Twitter. And feel free to uh, tell us what you think with regard to the filibuster and also suggest some uh, topics for Politics 101 for next week. So on the line, we have our first guest, Leo Leibowitz from Tablet Magazine, who writes very, quite intelligently, and uh, very insightful about Israel and Israeli politics. And we're going to take a look at what happened two days ago and how, the, how Netanyahu is potentially going to cobble together a coalition. Leo, welcome to Spin Class, and thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So in addition to being a uh, journalist and uh, pundit, you are uh, also a professor at the same time. That I am. Okay so good because on this show we ca- we like to give people a little educational perspective on certain things. So, so why don't you just give us the the very basic baseline of uh the Israeli election because it doesn't lend itself to easy understanding.
1: Well, let me tell you it will, it will take uh it will take much more than uh, one professor to explain what happened uh you know in Israel this week. Uh this is a truly baffling uh, election. We we have here, first of all, you know, let's let's take this election by the numbers. Uh it appears that there are two blocks uh, in, in in Israeli society, what you would call the right uh and religious bloc that has parties like the uh like uh the Jewish home uh, and like the religious parties, and then a sort of centrist left block that has Labor, Yeri Lapid's new party, uh Kadima, new party, uh Merit and the Arab parties. Uh it seems as if these two blocks are, are split right down the middle. Uh, they're, they're, more or less, depending on, on, what calculation you like to look at, but they're more or less, uh, 60-60. In the Knesset, that is, of course, uh, divided up of, or made up of 120 seats. Uh, so the question, uh, as you, uh, so pointedly put it early on, uh, is, is what kind of coalition are we looking at? Uh, this, according to, to most, uh, you know, most calculations and most pundits, we're really looking at, at one of possible four scenarios. Um netanyahu does no doubt received a huge blow uh, he was expecting a far uh, stronger show of support uh... and and he was left with uh, with with a, a collection or very bad options. His first very bad option is to go ahead and found a sort of coalition that is based mainly uh, on a very 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 narrow partnership with Nastali Bennett from, from Habaytay Yehudi, from the Jewish home, uh, and with the ultra-orthodox parties uh, which I think is is problematic for two reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, it will appear to to represent uh, a relatively small uh, uh, a number of, of of voters. But but even more importantly, uh, politically, uh, it would put him at best. Uh, with a one vote advantage and, and you were talking before about the Senate and filibuster, you, know, you can imagine that the Israeli really Knesset is equally as ambitious. if not much more than, than the senate and, and and being you know only one vote ahead of 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 the game it's it's kind of like a political disaster. but the second thing that he could try and do is go ahead and form some sort of coalition with Yair Lapid, the newcomer who had just won nineteen seats now that is from the, uh, well, uh,
0: the the Shad uh, party.
1: Yes, the Yesh Atid party. Now Yair Lapid's main uh campaign platform uh, had to do with demanding the uh the military conscription of the ultra orthodox. Now this probably means that Netanyahu is immediately ruling out the religious parties and and quite likely uh you know also also a host of other uh partners on the right which will mean essentially that Netanyahu will have a coalition with Yair Lapid but a coalition that could very well be narrow uh if if Shelly Yachimovich, the head of labor, uh, deigns to join that uh, coalition and bring her 11 seats uh, into the mix, it will be a bit more stable. But most likely she will choose to sit on the outside and brand herself as a royal opposition. So Netanyahu at this point could potentially start a coalition that is about maybe 10 votes uh, ahead of, of, of the game, but still... Uh, deeply, deeply problematic for many of his uh, partners or many of his members of Knesset inside the liquid itself uh, who are very, very uh, sort of right-wing and, and will kind of not get along with uh, many of the Lapide's uh, party members, some of whom are quite, uh, uh, quite radical. Well, right, left. his
0: own party itself is not really his own party. It's actually two parties, and even within his own party, he's probably more to the center of his own, of own Absolutely Likud. so, absolutely
1: true. Um, now, that, that leaves uh, two other options, and they're equally as terrible. Uh, the one option is uh, that uh, President Shimon Peres, and I don't uh, know how many of your uh, listeners uh, know this. I, for that matter, don't know how many Israelis know this, but the, the way the system works in Israel, uh, the president of the country has to uh, assign one of the candidates, uh you know, to uh, form the next government now this is not necessarily the head of the largest party this is the candidate that the president believes based on consultations with uh the leaders of all the parties has the best chance of forming the coalition so theoretically and i don't think there's a very big chance of that happening but certainly uh, you know a chance uh paris could come ahead and decide look i am going to appoint lapide uh the next prime minister and then lapide uh, uh builds uh, his own cabinet which is uh, uh, consists of labor, Sipi Levni's party, um, which is called Hatsunuah or the movement, Kadima, uh, uh, and the Arab parties. That could very well be, and that, again, is a very, very narrow coalition. So that, that,
0: that's something that's never happened in Israel's history, right? The Arab parties have never actually been part of the coalition.
1: It has happened once. It oh, happened okay. in 1992 under Uh He... He was the first uh, sort of prime minister to reach out uh, to to our parties, but he had you know enough clout, being the sort of you know the, the legendary chief of staff during the 1967 war, to reach out and say, hey, look, you know, we could we could break this taboo. Hasn't happened since. Now, but they, but they sub- tor- in that case they su- they
0: supported the government, but they weren't necessarily part of the government. Is that a- uh, correct? Right. They weren't part so, of the so government. So they didn't they vote against the coalition. They didn't vote against uh, it, but they were. Right. They they so they okay. Uh, just to clarify.
1: Now, there's, there's, there's one fourth option, and I, I want to raise it, because I think it's very entertaining. Uh, and, and this is a kind of a unique Israeli invention in which, you know, I'm not particularly proud. We've seen it happen in 1981, and this is the uh, national unity government. This is a situation in which uh, when two parties are completely at, at uh, you know, at loggerheads and completely at, at, uh, you know, uh, completely at odds, uh, you could go and decide that you're building a very wide coalition, and you're rotating the role of prime minister. Uh, Shimon Teres and Yitzhak Shamir did that in the early 80s, and it's quite feasible that we will see some sort of solution that says, okay, look, we're going to announce a new election in two years, and until then we're going to form a sort of emergency government or national unity government that will essentially agree to disagree, that will essentially agree to just keep, uh, uh, keep the seat until we could go ahead and sort that out in, in a more... Um, more orderly fashion. So you could you could see all kinds of, of fascinating and entertaining scenarios uh, unfolding in the next couple of days.
0: So two things that strike me about this. Number one is everybody thought that BB was an absolute genius for having the elections at this time. He really didn't have anybody who was really going to oppose him. Nobody of stature. There was looked at. There was no alternative. And it didn't work out that way. And number two is that there was, at least if you looked over here on this side of the, of the ocean, The New York Times described it as the electorate was yawning, and it seemed to be a pretty robust turnout. I think we'd be envious of that kind of turnout here. So uh, the the public seemed to be engaged, but they certainly did seem, didn't seem to be engaged in a way that uh, Netanyahu had, had expected.
1: I, I think that's very true. I think if you had to characterize uh, the state of the public, I would say the public was sleepwalking. Uh, its movement uh, but but you're still essentially dormant. Uh, I think the public made a conscientious decision with Yair Lapid uh, to vote for a candidate who was not any of the other guys you didn't really like. Uh, I think that if you see Yair Lapid's list and if you look at Yair Lapid's uh, platform, you're not going to find there anything that, that's truly visionary or inspiring. Uh, he has very little or anything to say about, uh, you know, how to approach uh, the Palestinians or what to do with the Iranians. Uh, His economic plan is, uh, you know, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. And and the main point on which he ran, which is the conscription of the ultra-Orthodox, is a point that sort of, you know, has been recycled in Israeli politics for decades, most notably, by the way, by Yair Lapid's own father, Yosef Lapid, who was a star politician for one second in uh, in 2003, uh, received 17 seats in the Knesset in the 2003 elections and then, you know, promptly disappeared. So I think really what Israelis are saying uh, that is that uh, they, they they dislike Bibi, they dislike uh, the direction he's taking the country, they dislike some of his provocations, they dislike his political partners, they dislike the makeup of his party, uh, but they simply couldn't think of any anyone better or any other uh, more concrete and coherent vision, uh, which is why they went with someone who felt to them, uh, you know, safe and reassuring.
0: Fascinating. One thing I got to ask is Israel surrounded by enemies you have the iranian threat you have oh as you know not too long ago conflict in gaza at the doorstep syria lebanon foreign policy would seem or foreign affairs would seem to be high on my list of issues but the public seems to be focused on the economic issues kind of not dissimilar to what's going on here in the u.s so we uh, are just past the election
1: um, yeah, you know, I, I I agree with that. I, I think it as it a um, it's an extraordinary phenomenon of all the candidates uh, who are running. And by the way, I I, I don't wish to uh, single Ariel Apeid out for undue criticism. He was barely the only one ignoring the topics. Uh, Shelly Echimovich, for example, head of the Labour Party uh wanted very much to come out as the second largest party in this election, uh, failed miserably. But her, her strategy uh, was to uh, uh, sort of decidedly uh, ignore anything that had to do with any sort of foreign policy or security-related matter. Um, I think that's incredibly disappointing. I think that's, that's a sign... Uh, of Of uh, fatigue, which you know in part is understandable on behalf of the Israeli electorate, but these problems you know you and I and everyone else paying attention knows these problems are not going to go away at some point they're going to demand some sort of very concrete uh, address and and hopefully uh, when that time comes, there will be some sort of leader in Jerusalem who knows uh, how to reply
0: so the, i I guess just to return to to the issue with regard to lapid is. We we have this idea, okay? There's right, left, center. Although all the all the papers seem to say it's right, and then there's center left. I guess the center seems to always seems to be on the left. Uh, but where, where does where does he stand? Is is Yarrell From what I understand, a lot of his voters were disaffected, or and what it seems like you're saying is a lot of his voters were disaffected right wingers. They would have voted for Bibi, but they, instead they went to Lapid because they wanted to show Bibi they didn't like him so much. Or you know, are they? Michael, allow me. Allow me to confuse you. Oh, <laughs> if I may. No, it's uh, it's great. I I enjoy it. Maybe by I the end make, of the show, I try and figure things out.
1: I could make two uh, two opposing, contradictory cases, each very strong. I could come out and say, as, as some pundits, uh, uh, especially on the internet, have been saying in the last two days, that the Lapide is nothing more than you know, a BB B two point sort of a, a younger bb with better hair. Uh you could point to the fact that he uh started or launched his uh electoral campaign in Alya, the largest settlement uh in the West Bank, uh that he uh repeatedly said that the only goal as far as he could uh see in terms of of, of you know kind of negotiations with Palestinians uh is to keep them uh as much at bay as possible. Uh, you could point to the fact that, uh, you know, traditionally in, in his role as uh, television pundit and, and newspaper guy, he has located himself, uh, if not staunchly, at least clearly enough, uh, somewhat towards the center-right. He's a sort of, you know, close friend of Olmert and probably believer in kind of Olmert's uh, gentle uh, right-wing or gentle uh philosophies uh and then and then you could take uh, a turn uh 180 degrees and you could point to the fact that uh very high up in Yilapeid now very substantial party are people like Yael German, the former mayor of Herzliya uh who is uh, a member of Meretz or formerly was a member of the 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 left wing party Meretz uh Yair Lapid's friend Ofer Shelach who is one of Israel's most prominent journalists uh who is known and has written you know repeatedly uh, about positions that are uh, very much identifiable with the left, uh, even people like Yaakov perry the former head of the Israeli secret service, you could see if you want to know what that person thinks, and and that person, you know, might very very well be maybe the next minister of defense. Um, you go see a movie called The Gatekeepers that's opening uh, in theaters in New York soon, and is currently nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, it's a series of interviews with heads of of Israeli secret service and. And what Jacob Perry essentially says there is that, you know, if you don't make peace, if you don't make concessions, if you don't the settlement, there will be a disaster. So which one of these two sides is right, uh, I think only time would tell.
0: Fascinating. So let, let's uh, unpack a little bit some of the other success or non-success of some of the other parties. Uh Yehudi seems uh, today, I think, they just picked up a 12th seat. Yes. So that makes them the fourth largest party uh after we we, we covered uh uh Likud Beitenu, we covered uh Yesh Atid, mm-hmm. Then we have uh, Shelly Yachimovich in, in Labor and now uh Beit Yehudi which at one point had been looking at 15, 16, 17 seats then down then up and sure. uh, they went from just went from 11 to 12 today according from, right. from, from what I from what I saw. So uh, and they also have a uh, a bb2.0 type of character. I like that little uh uh description there.
1: Uh you know what I actually wouldn't uh I don't know that I would say this about Naftali Bennett. Uh, you know, um first of all I think it's it's quite obvious uh that that by any uh you know by any measurable metric uh the by the UD party and Naftali Bennett did extremely well. Uh, before uh, this election, the two parties that came together to form a Baite UD had six seats uh, in, in the Knesset. Nafali Bennett doubled that. Uh, so, <laughs> by any measure, uh, that's That's a sizable electoral success, and, and even more impressive uh, he did that by by courting and and winning over uh, an and, uh, exorbitant number of secular Israelis who voted for him even though he, ha- he headed uh, a, a national religious party
0: So, so now, I st- think- S- Leo stop on that for a second because how in in a stratified polarized society like israel, how do you have, we, we, how do you have a religious party? that appeals to the secular, to secular society?
1: Well, you know... How do you do I that? Is it that, packaging? Uh, in, ...in a profile of not so liber tablet um, I think the answer is, you know, the answer really has to do with ideology. I think that for, for decades, uh, the mainstream parties, Likud and, and Labour, sort of were the representatives of, of kind of, you know, what most people consider to be true Zionism, you know, the heirs of the founding fathers, uh, sort of, you know, the, the, the heirs of the spirit of the pioneers. Uh, but I think something happened to that spirit in the last 30, 40 years. I think it simply ossified. You know, having established a Jewish state in 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 Israel, a Jewish homeland in Israel, uh, you know, most of these parties just went on to be just boring old political organizations. And and Naftali Bennett had a very different message which was an ideological message and a spiritual message, and he said, hey guys, you know, uh, Zionism needs to be reborn. Zionism needs to be reinvented. It needs to be reinvented as as uh, an Israeli and, and, more importantly, as a Jewish uh, entity. And I think that is dramatically appealing. You know, you, you, you could say to people, like Michael Dukakis did in the uh, uh, debates in 1988, you know, he was asked, what do you want? And he said, you know, more jobs for better pay. Well, that doesn't really get people, you know, super excited. Uh, but if you come out like Naftali Bennett and said, hey, you know, we have this rich tradition to be proud of. We have heritage. We have this philosophy. We have this ideology. We have this these ideas. Uh, I think that got a lot of people uh, very, very, very excited. And I think that's why so many secular Israelis uh, flocked to this party.
0: So... Where where does he stand as far? He's the natural partner for for BB, I would imagine. And then we talked about a very narrow coalition government that would include the religious. There are a lot of re, uh, religious mandates here in in this govern in this potential government, or in this Knesset, right? You have uh, you have in addition to Beitenu, you have Shas, you have uh, uh, the UTJ, which is the, mm-hmm. the Gimel party, uh, and you also had quite a little bit of drop off uh, of some religious parties or feuding religious parties that didn't get their that didn't get their uh, threshold, so a lot of votes wasted on on the side there. Otzma uh, Yisrael and Am Shalem and La LaShbia and all those smaller ones. So uh, you had a you had a big religious vote in this in this uh, in this past election. You certainly
1: did uh I, I think it's 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 uh very difficult to know uh how how that religious vote would play out. I think most likely, uh or, or you know if I was a betting man I would probably bet on, on the following scenario of a sort of coalition between Netanyahu, Lapid, C.P. and Naftali Bennett that uh leaves uh the religious out that uh that makes some uh you know very, very strong uh, demands on on uh, some of issues that have been traditionally uh, dear to to the religious community, uh, mainly you know the issue of conscription, um, and I think that they're going to form probably a very feisty and fierce opposition.
0: Is it possible for the religious parties to uh, the I guess the Haredi parties, the the Shah said the UTJ to exist outside of the government? Don't don't they really have to be in the government in order to deliver?
1: Well, you know, I think it really depends on the, on, on, on the political scenario. So I could see several things happening. I could see uh, someone like Arya Derry, who is, uh, you know, the, the once and future king of Shas, uh, just recently returned to politics after a very long, uh, you know, ab- abstinence and, and, and prison sentence. Um, I could see someone like that. Uh, understanding that the political winds are blowing <laughs> in a different direction and making very painful concessions and issues like conscription in order to uh, continue and secure uh, budgets uh, for for his voters, for his sector. Uh, I could see that happening, And but I could also see uh, a kind of much more grim scenario, which is uh, some sort of decision to go ahead with conscription um, you know, full force, uh, and then, you know, Ravavadya, who is the spiritual leader of Shas, already said that if that happens, uh, we will be facing a situation of massive civil disobedience. So I can also see uh, even a sort of political rebirth uh, for these parties centered around not necessarily just budgets and institutions, but really about uh, or around that feeling that, uh, you know, their way of life is, is being threatened and rejected. Um, Most likely, I think there will be some sort of compromise. Uh, Yair Lapid's own ideas about conscription state that, you know, we won't even begin to address this question uh, before five years down the line that we've had some time to kind of like rethink and and reorganize. Uh, So I think that gives enough of a leeway to people like uh, Shas to sort of, you know, silently join the
0: coalition. How long do you think this government lasts? I I, I would have to I, I would have I, I would have to look at it. You, you know, if you look at the guy at the top, who is weakened because he does, he certainly didn't come out stronger in this election, so he he's definitely weakened. His his own party is probably way to the right of him, and he gave away a lot of seats, but when he merged with uh, with Betano with his Beteno, and uh, a lot of, I guess, Lukundex feel he gave away the store there. Uh, we had a we had a guest a couple of weeks ago who who felt very disaffected as a Lukund central committee member who who defected to uh, to supporting Bennett. And it, so BB's not coming to this for, with a huge position of strength. Uh, at his party has a lot fewer seats than it had. So how, how and all these other guys, I'm sure, want to take a shot at him. So uh, so how how do you stay in power for? You know, you know they, they, they,
1: they not only would they like to take a shot at him, but he has nowhere to go because traditionally, the move for uh for, for leaders of, of Likud who were disaffected uh, by the way uh, the the party was going uh, was to do what you know Sharon did when, when he quit and started Kadima. Now Sharon could only do this because he had a sizable uh, portion of of the party's members to take with him, uh, you know, into political exile. Uh, Netanyahu, in and, and the recent Likud primaries, lost all of his natural allies. He lost Beni Begin, he lost Amrido, he lost all these people, Miki Eitan, you know, people who are considered kind of staunch stalwarts of, of the Likud establishment. So Netanyahu has nowhere to go. He he can't uh, break from Likud and, and start his own faction. He needs uh, to somehow deal with, with his coalition. And, and, and I think members of his party uh, are already real, or realizing that, you know, uh, to use a, a favorite political metaphor that there's blood in the water that uh, they stand to gain a lot of politically politically by sort of taking pot shots uh, at at the wounded leader uh, i I don't see this to be quite frank and of course you know uh, uh, a prophecy is is a, is a fool's errand but i I don't see this government lasting uh, longer than a year or a year and a half
0: a year year and a half that's all you're giving it
1: Listen, I, I don't, I don't see this. I don't see this working. I mean, again, it's, it's a very foolish thing to say because there are so many things that could happen that will uh, wholly change the whole, uh, the whole kind of you know political landscape in Israel. I mean, we've seen these earthquakes before, uh, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Um, but I simply don't see a coalition that could uh, that could deal with with the issues it has at hand. And mo- most importantly, look, the reason he had. To declare the elections uh, at the time that they are was because he is facing a massive, massive, massive catastrophic deficit, uh, which would mean that he essentially would have to make very, very painful cuts and most likely raise taxes. Now, that, as you well know, you know that's the kind of act that you can only achieve if you have a very, very, very strong political backbone. He, he has no political backbone, strong or otherwise. He's, he's lucky if he has a handful of members of Congress who, who would support you know, begrudgingly support his initiative. Um, um, I, I don't see this happening, and, and it's not only him. I don't think there's anyone currently in the political landscape who could who could rise. Uh, but maybe maybe uh, maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised.
0: So the base is gone, the backbone is gone, and uh, I guess the next couple months or next couple years are not looking like happy ones for uh, the uh, new prime, new potentially new prime minister, I should say.
1: I, I would
0: not like that job right now. Okay. Well, Leo, thank you very, very much. It's been an absolutely a fantastic discussion. And uh, you can find Leo on Tablet Magazine, uh, and where he, he writes about Israeli society, culture, politics, and the like. And we hope to have you again soon.
1: Michael, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: This is The Spin Class, Politics with Michael Fragan and on the Nachum Siegel Network. And I want to welcome uh, to the show uh, our first guest, a longtime friend and uh, mentor, and somebody who I've uh, read uh, quite a bit uh, of uh, with his books and uh, his policy, Uh, an old uh, Washington hand, as they say, although not really that old, Dr. Tevi Troy, who is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he researches uh, health care and domestic policy. And uh, he is the author of Intellectuals in the American Presidency, which is a very, very interesting book that uh, I've read, and an upcoming book with uh, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. Uh, Tevi, welcome to Spin Class, and that's a great title, uh, but a little bit well, of thanks.
2: a mouthful. Oh, I appreciate it. My publisher appreciates it, too.
0: <laughs> so, Tevi, you're, you're looking at second terms, and you're you're a presidential historian. You've been on the inside, but you're also an analyst who looks at it on the outside. So, Tell us what second terms often look like for a president. They have a uh, little bit of political capital, obviously, having, having won, but they achieve lame duck status sometimes pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, that's right. And uh, I mean, I, I did study the presidency. I uh, have a PhD, and I also worked in the White House in the Bush administration, and I was especially focused on the second term, which was uh, a difficult one. So the presidents do have a tough time in that second term. Everybody thinks the second term is going to be the great one. I, I always remember as a as pretty young kid reading William Sapphire, recommending that Ronald Reagan in 1983 not even run for a second term because second terms are always so difficult. And I was thinking that uh, initially, wow, that's kind of crazy. Why wouldn't he run for a second term? I, I obviously, he obviously did very well and he was uh, very, very popular and, and uh, he did, as second terms go, have a pretty good one, but he also... Uh, had the Iran-Contra scandal pop up in that. So there is kind of a legacy of scandals, deaths, obviously uh, Lincoln and McKinley killed in, in their second terms, um, and general ineffectiveness that, that come up in second terms that often lead them to be disappointing.
0: Well, I would imagine the assassination outcome is probably uh, an outside factor. As opposed to the, I, yeah, I wouldn't call that a terrible, terrible thing and terrible I, tragedy. But I wouldn't Lincoln's call that part of the second term is malaise. Is the, would I? The shortest um,
2: second term, but the best known one ever, because uh, it was so eventful in terms of the the war being won, and um, uh, obviously the the assassination w- was part of it. Um, but he his famous second inaugural address um, uh, with malice towards none, uh, which kind of set the tone for how they would go forward with the reser- with uh, reconstruction. So uh, Lincoln, even though it was terrible, the terrible tragedy of his death, he actually had a pretty good second term in terms term in terms of outcome. But the uh, the second terms again are just generally difficult, and it remains to be seen if uh, President Obama will be able to uh, defeat the second term curse.
0: I, I would say we re- uh, remembered very fondly. Lincoln was no question that. Uh, I, I guess maybe he never got to that uh, second term malaise or. Lane duck status, but you you actually transitioned from the White House to being a, a, a assistant a secretary of health. So you moved out of the White House, it, it, for the during the not enti- the entire second term, correct?
2: Yeah, the first two years of the second Bush term, I was in the White House Domestic Policy Council, and then the second two years, I was de- deputy secretary of health.
0: Deputy secretary, uh, but, correct. But
2: I was in the White House when Katrina happened, and the, it's the closest I've ever come to the sensation of air being left let out of a balloon. Because it was it was that one thing that kind of really hammered the administration so badly, and, and I never felt that they were able to recover from that.
0: Uh, well, it was uh, quite a display of uh, I, I guess the the word only comes to mind is ineptitude. Uh, there
2: was a, a lot of government. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of it. But in government... A lot of it was at the local and sure, at the state level, and sure, uh, I... it seemed that the federal government was getting the blame for all of it.
0: Sure, I was going to say there's a lot. There was a, enough ineptitude to go around. There's no question. Having just had a a natural disaster that's uh, still having the effects here in New York, there's there's no question that uh, the scope sometimes of the devastation is really beyond. What uh, government has an ability to handle, not saying that they shouldn't have the ability, but they're just not prepared in many cases to go ahead and handle it. But what I was wanting to get at is that there's a personnel transition in that second term. And we're seeing that here with Obama. He's, uh, he, he's transitioning with a number of key appointments and cabinet secretaries and the like. And uh, so that leads to a different profile, correct? Correct.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There there are a bunch of new people coming in, and it, it's not easy to take on these jobs, even if you have experienced people. Whatever job it is, let's say you're going from uh, Chief of Staff to Treasury Secretary, as Jack Lew is, uh, there is a learning curve. So you you don't just go in on day one and know exactly how to do it, and it's, uh, it's not smooth. So these are always tough jobs, and whatever you're doing, it's, um, uh, it's a challenge. And I recall with the, the move of... Jack Lew from chief of staff to Treasury Secretary. The second Reagan term, they actually did a a switch in positions where Don Regan was Treasury Secretary, he became chief of staff. Jim Baker was chief of staff, he became Treasury Secretary. Now Jim Baker was a great chief of staff, perhaps one of the best chiefs of staff ever, um, and he was a very good Treasury Secretary. Don Regan was a okay Treasury Secretary, but he was a terrible chief of staff, and he allowed Ray, uh, Iran-Contra to happen under his watch and and some other things. So. Uh, just switching the the deck chairs around isn't always a good strategy either. There are people who are good for certain jobs that doesn't mean they're good for every job.
0: What makes a great chief of staff Your...
2: well uh Baker presided over a uh, a contentious white house there were There were kind of different factions, the more liberal faction and the and the more conservative faction you know today we think of the Republican party as a pretty conservative party back then there there were real divisions between what was known as the the meese faction, the more conservatives, and that kind of the the faction. and and Baker Group, which was was a more moderate group. Uh, So Baker presided over that pretty well. The the economy turned around under Reagan. Obviously, the the number one thing a president is judged by in their first term is whether they are reelected, and so uh, he he scored well on that. Uh, But but he he understood the levers of power, and he just knew how to manage a government, and he did very well at it.
0: So taking a look at the... The, the next four years, you look at, at this point, we're, we're at the furthest point away from a presidential election. So you would figure it would be...
2: 1,459 days. Hey, okay. They, but, the Obama but, term, not but, that I'm counting. But who's,
0: <laughs> exactly, but who's counting? I mean, I, I'll ignore that little uh, clock, that countdown clock that you have sitting right in front of you. Right. But uh, how many seconds exactly? <laughs> yeah, but i <not> sure <laughs> of that. But uh, <laughs> the... Uh, you you look at this point and you're thinking, okay, there should be a little bit of a honeymoon, perhaps you get a couple months that you get to reestablish yourself after a tough election. You have some political capital to spend, but uh, it doesn't seem so in this type of environment. I, I know you, you you know you're looking you're looking at some of the historically some of those second terms and some of these presidents. Uh, they had a little bit of a honeymoon for at least a year. They kind of then approached the midterm elections, but uh, yeah. and we're not but, seeing that right now.
2: Yeah, but the honeymoon is not enough. I mean, look at look at Lyndon Johnson. I mean, it wasn't a it was a second term, but he didn't have a full first term, obviously, since he took over from Kennedy. But he had the wind at his back when he came in. And he had a huge electoral victory over Goldwater. Goldwater. Yeah. And he, he pushed through the, the Great Society in the first couple of years of his term, but he never ran again, even though he was constitutionally allowed to, because he didn't have a full first term. Um, and in '68, he kind of said that he will not seek and he will not stand for the nomination of his party. He kind of left in disgrace because of Vietnam brought him down, which was not what was expected. People were thinking of, of him as a huge domestic success, and then Vietnam just just took it apart for him. So the uh, the, the initial honeymoon doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Uh, Right now, uh, Obama does not seem to have a honeymoon because the problems we face are so intractable. The the trillion dollars of debt we're adding every year, the $16 trillion overall amount of debt, and um, the the fact that uh, President Obama told John Boehner, Speaker Boehner, that he he was sick and tired of hearing that we have a spending problem. Well, obviously, we do have a spending problem. It's something that has to be addressed. And if you're not going to even recognize that that it's a problem, you're not going to have much of a honeymoon.
0: Well, I, I would yeah we i mean we've said that quite a few times that that uh, these are these are issues that you would think that he would want to tackle and uh, especially now but is it within his own party that he can't tackle them they're preventing him or you would figure that he has an agenda that he wants to get through going through the second term you know there's some big ideas right immigration is a, is you know reform there's a big idea out there and you know some of these other things that he wants to go ahead and, and tackle, but uh, that probably will take a backseat to the immediate issues of the debt ceiling and the spending cuts and the sequester uh, and the like.
2: Yeah, actually, I think if he gets one thing done, one legacy item done in the second term, I think it would be immigration. Cause I think there's some appetite in the Republican Party. If you remember, President Bush was the one— who pushed for immigration reform in his second term, it ended up not working out so well. And, and part of the reason it, it, it didn't pass, it had the votes in, in the House, but Harry Reid slowed it down at a crucial moment in the Senate. And if he hadn't done that, it probably would have passed and we would be beyond this issue at this point. But, uh, uh, but immigration is an issue that, that is very difficult within the Democratic base because there are some powerful constituencies within the Democratic Party that are not necessarily for a more expansive immigration part, uh, policy. And so you, you often have divisions among what the Hispanic Coalition wants and what African Americans want and what, the, um, and what the labor unions want. So uh, immigration is a tough issue for, for the Democrats. They could talk about how they want it to happen, but there's a reason why President Obama promised, promised, promised that he would put forward an immigration reform in his first term, in his first year, and he never did it, because it's such a difficult issue for the Democratic base.
0: So we don't think of it like that, because I think a lot of these issues have become so partisan that we look at Republicans on one side of the gun control debate, Democrats on the other side of the gun control debate, or gun rights, however you want to couch it. Democrats on one side of immigration, Republicans on the other side. Democrats on the one side of the tax issue, Republicans on the other side. But What you're saying is these issues are a lot more nuanced. There are a lot of Democrats who are for gun rights, for example.
2: Yeah, gun rights and immigration are two excellent uh, issues and and examples. Uh, With gun rights, uh, there are a lot of of red state Democrats who uh, who want to protect the Second Amendment. And uh, with immigration, the Republicans are clearly divided on it, and there were were issues that they've had, but the Democrats are divided as well. So it's not an issue that cleanly breaks along party lines. But that, that also means that there's a bipartisan opportunity to get something passed. I, mean, I for one, am a fan of expanded legal immigration. I'd like to see some kind of skills test so that you're, we're, we're bringing in uh, the best and brightest in, into this country, people that have the skills we need going forward. Canada does this. Australia does this. There's a recognition that it is a buyer's market when it comes to immig- immigrants, and they want to get immigrants that are the most helpful and most productive to their economy.
0: So just for a second, how do, you, how do you get things passed in that sense with, with the Hastert rule? Right, we talked about the Hastert rule a couple of weeks ago that you can't— and a majority of rep- the majority, rep- majority, right? Majority of the majority, right? So you're talking, you're talking about passing some of these big-ticket items based on a coalition, right? You might have some Republicans, some Democrats working together to pass something. But in Washington these days, it doesn't seem possible.
2: Yeah, I think you could get a majority of Republicans on board with some kind of immigration reform, but you'd have to be very strict on people who came here illegally. You'd have to have uh, expanded legal immigration. And uh, I I would think that the Republicans would want a skills test. And and again, that was in in the President Bush uh, immigration proposal back in uh, 2007 or so. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy but I think you could get a majority uh, of Republicans on it, depending on how it's crafted. But President Obama has to be willing to work with the Republicans. You know, with, with the health care bill, he claimed he was willing to work with them, and then he kind of was a little haughty in, when he brought them into the White House. And remember, he told um, uh, um, Eric Cantor, I won this election, Eric, and he really didn't want to hear their ideas. He just wanted to bring them to the White House for a photo op. And so that that is not the way to get this stuff done.
0: Well, don't people... Don't people like the photo op in the White House?
2: I mean, uh, well, I think Republicans <laughs> are liking it less and less lately. Uh, and, and one thing John Boehner has been saying is that we're going to start doing things regular order. We're going to pass stuff. Senate can try and pass stuff. They're, they're not as good as passing stuff as the House. In fact, they can barely pass the budget and haven't done so in over 1,000 days. Uh, so Boehner said we will pass things in regular order. And if the Senate passes bills in the same area, then we can have a conference committee, which is – uh, the traditional way of doing things, but doing the photo op, sham negotiations at the White House has not been a good strategy for Republicans. I don't think it's a, been a good strategy for bipartisan coming together either. And I'm not even sure it's worked out for President Obama, even though he's he's had some high-profile wins. It's not necessarily making this town more e- able or eager to get stuff done. So I, I think if you go back to the traditional method, maybe we'll have more success.
0: So I I guess the idea would be just to okay here we are this is this is what's before us forget about negotiating we'll we'll leave that for things that are actually passed here and you know we might pass legislation that's what we're fond of doing here in New York you know a lot of one house bills I mean that's that's the that's what the Albany is known for thousands of one house bills they might not they might not go anywhere but it, the the members get to all talk about the bills that they passed in their own house. Uh, that, that doesn't seem like a recipe for good function, though.
2: Uh, no, it, it is it isn't, but one-house bill is only part of the story, I and mean, the House passes stuff, and if the Senate passes things, so if the House passes an immigration reform and the Senate passes one, then they can conference it out and, and come up with with a solution. But the, these negotiations for a grand bargain uh, do not seem to be working. They're certainly not working for the Republicans, and and I don't think they're improving the attitude on either side of Pennsylvania Avenue. And I don't think they're bringing people together at all either.
0: So one thing a lot of people have have mentioned with regard to uh, the lack of the unruliness, I guess, of Congress and and of the Republicans being a little bit in disarray is the lack of member items uh, or the lack of earmarks to go ahead and keep the rank and file happy or to keep them fed. What, what what do you make of that? I mean, you 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 probably looked at that from the White House and potentially from uh, with a little bit of disdain, right? With you know, those, yeah, we, those, we those definitely earmarks. looked at it with
2: distaste. There was a sense that uh, the, it was it was kind of the uh, the spoonful of sugar that made the medicine go down. You know, you, you would have uh, excellent uh, delay Who was you know who would talk about how he was anti spending, but he would use these kind of projects to get stuff done. He you would, would grease the skids with it. And it's it's unseemly and it's unsavory, but but it seemed to work. So I wonder if, um, and, and I'm not a fan of earmarks, and I don't think we should go back to it. But I wonder if we will look back and say there was an unintended consequence of getting rid of the earmark, earmarks, and that they actually made Congress function more smoothly. But I don't think the solution is to go back to earmarks, which I, I think led to some terrible results, and you'd always hear about, you know, research on bear feces or whatever, or bridges to nowhere, and so. I, I don't think that's the, the right way to go, but what I do think is that in the absence of earmarks, they do need to come up with a new and different way of making projects go forward.
0: It's really amazing when, from an outsider, well, not really outsider's perspective, but the from any perspective, how the sausage is made, when people don't realize what comes into getting legislation passed and how many different uh, mouths there are to feed, even uh, from a non earmark perspective, but just people want uh, individual things and individual bills and amendments and and the like, and uh, the markup, uh, the the process uh, that uh, that gets stuff done. And I think that that's uh, is that something that it's part of the process, but it, it's it's something that certainly uh, certainly complicates things.
2: Look, we have an unruly system. I, I recently met with the Immigration Minister of Canada. And he laid out some immigration reforms that he wanted to make along the lines of the skills test we were talking about earlier, how they were going to improve their, their skills tests so they continue to bring in the, the best immigrants who will be most productive in their economy. And I asked him, well, how are you going to do this? Are you going to do it legislatively or administratively? Because we've had challenges doing it legislatively here. And he said... We have a parliamentary system, and we have the majority. We say we're going to do it, and we get it done. So it, it's just obviously not that kind of system. And I heard your previous guest was talking about the Israeli elections, which has its unruliness of its own. But if you do have a working majority in a parliamentary system, you, you could make stuff happen faster and more easily.
0: So you actually—because when you vote for somebody, you're voting them for them based on an agenda, and you're saying, okay, this is the agenda we want. Although it doesn't always work if you have to build coalitions. Then it's multiple agendas at the same time. The, the coalitions in Israel definitely make it
2: more <laughs> challenging as we're seeing now. And, um, and, and I, I kind of agree with your, your previous guest that, uh, that this coalition, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but this coalition will not be that long-lasting. Because uh, everybody is emboldened by this election. Everybody but the person who's actually going to be prime minister is emboldened by this. But in the U.S., we have a different system. You know, you're, you're not going to have a one-year second term for President Obama. He's going to have four years. And so we're going to have to figure out ways to let, uh, let things continue to happen, uh, because if we just continue along the path we're on, we will have $20 trillion in debt. At the end of President Obama's second term, and that's not a legacy we want to leave to our children or our grandchildren.
0: That's probably a different clock that you have next to the countdown clock. It's probably sitting there as the debt clock is saying, you know, what what your each of your children their their share. I mean, that's. Oh, what Michael, I'm, I'm keeping track of everything. <laughs> you got multiple clocks at the same time, so it's. I guess it makes an, it makes a you know a, your your analysis of domestic policy all that more real on a regular basis. You know
2: I, I, you know me for a long time, and I'm generally an optimist, and I'm a very positive person, and very positive about America. That's for sure. that thing is the one thing that keeps me up at night. It makes me worry, how are we going to pass on a working economy to our children and grandchildren? It just doesn't seem that if we allow this country to default, or if we inflate our way out of it... Uh, These are not real solutions to the problem, and it tells the rest of the world that America is not a serious place, and it's not the best place to go and invest. It's not the place where immigrants want to come, and it's not the beacon of light and hope to the world that it's been for so long. So I want to get us back to that point, and the way we do it is by solving this debt crisis.
0: How do do we get there? I I, I mean, it's it's massive. It's $16 trillion, and how do you start... How do we start doing it? Every time we turn around and say, "Okay, let's get to spend," well, we can't spend less. There's going to be a recession. It's going to. We can't. Uh, we can't raise taxes because that's going to also create a recession. Well, we already we did that. Exactly. But we. <laughs> so what do we do? What's the recipe? Do you have a recipe? Does anybody have a recipe?
2: Yeah, I think there, there's a recipe. I mean, there, there, there's a couple of steps. First of all, you do need to continue economic growth because you, I mean, you can't just grow out of it, but growth has to be part of the equation. Because if you go into a period of stagnation like Japan, you ju- you just get stuck. And now they they're some like 200 plus percent of GDP uh, in, in debt, uh, so that that won't work. Uh, but you do have to have some real serious cuts. I mean, I was kind of disappointed in the the recent conversations about the. Um, uh, about the sequester and the fiscal cliff at the end of the year. They were talking about moving the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 67, save $125 billion over, over 10 years. Uh, it was part of the Social Security reform 25 years ago. Uh, it seems to me a uh, very obvious and, and simple step, and you had people on the left going hysterical over it and, and refusing to do it. And so President Obama, I guess, flirted with it but didn't get it done. Chained CPI. Uh, which, which is a new way of calculating inflation, uh, is another way of going uh, forward with this, uh, more means testing in Medicare. There are steps we can take to improve our, our fiscal situation, and we we're, we're seem unwilling to do it. In fact, in the Bob Woodward book, there's this great story of Jack Lew, who's about to be our Treasury Secretary, and he and Gene Sperling are negotiating with Eric Cantor and John Kyle about the, these, the, one of the debt ceiling uh, conversations. And at one point, uh, they talk about a Medicare reform that would save billions of dollars. Um, and it was, there's kind of bipartisan agreement that it's a good policy and it would actually improve the system. And Jack Lew and Gene Sperling say, well, we're not going to do that unless you raise taxes. And so John Kyle says, now, now wait a minute. Here's this policy. It's good policy. You agree it's good policy, it would reduce the debt, it would improve the Medicare system, and you won't do it unless we agree to raise taxes. And Jack Lew says, "Yeah, that's right." And at that point, John Kyle says, "Well, then I can't negotiate you with you. There's nothing to negotiate about. You're just all you want to do is stick it to us, but you don't want to actually get stuff done." So I, I think the third part of my my recipe for baking this cake for improving this the situation is that you've got to have people who are willing to put country above partisan politics, and they're willing to say. We we want to fix these problems. We actually want to get something done. We don't want to just stick it to the other guy.
0: A little rise above, if if you will. Rise
2: above if possible, yeah. It would be nice to see.
0: So just uh, as as we come to a close, and I'd really like to continue this all night, but uh, so many questions to ask. How about I, another
2: time instead of all night? <laughs> I, I, absolutely,
0: absolutely. Uh, very well put. And you know, my uh, producer here is looking at me with the evil eye, so uh, giving me the giving me the two minute warning. But uh, I'm looking at the to uh, forward to 2016, as I'm sure you are, and uh, we're looking at uh, some of these Republican governors, and they seem to be running against Washington, but not necessarily just against. The Democrats in Washington, they seem to be running against the Republicans in Washington as well. Chris Christie, Bobby Jindal, you know, they're kind of saying, okay, Washington dysfunction and all kinds of uh, negative things potentially about uh, their own party. Are we going to be, have a war within the Republican Party over the next couple of years?
2: I don't think it will necessarily be a war, but we've seen throughout our history that um, you tend to have governors win presidential elections and not senators. And the only reason... President Obama who was a senator before one cuz he was running against another senator but generally Americans like to see someone with executive experience because that's an important important part of being governor and secondly someone who's from outside of Washington because they know that Washington is dysfunctional and so it's really helpful to have someone who has that outsider standing who still is has experience and shows that they know how to make things happen, and they have that executive experience. And so I think it's always best to look from the universe of governors to figure out who the next presidential candidate is, uh,
0: whichever party. Okay, well, good advice to those of you running in 2016 out there. This is Spin Class. Heavy. thank you for joining us. Uh, we will take you up on that uh, return engagement. Spin Class with Michael Fragan on the Siegel Network. Stay tuned for The Book of Life with Charlie Harari on the Thursday night extravaganza. See you next week. Thank